Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Hello and welcome to the Nexus Podcast. This is another edition of the CRE Market Talks. I think this is our second version of this quarterly podcast series. I have Joe Gasperdoni and Mandy Whedon here. Um, We're going to talk about today, you know, first of all, what the CRE market is up to right now and how that relates to and affects the implementation and deployment of smart building technology. We're going to use ESGR to set the context a little bit. Um, First, let's do some intros for those of you that haven't met Joe and Mandy. Both of them have been on the podcast individually as guests. And then again, this is the second time we've done this with the three of us together. Joe, why don't you go first and introduce yourself? You got it. Joe Gasperdoni, COO of Montgomery Technologies. Montgomery is a infrastructure primarily uh, provider to commercial real estate converged networks which is happily now a term that's more widely understood and known um, and we've been been doing that for 20 years um, I also have a close to two decade uh, career in commercial real estate before that that is all of it almost every role in commercial real estate operations at one point or another so um, so we're going to leverage that on the market talk. All right, over to you, Mandy. Awesome. Nice to see you both. Hello. My name is Mandy Whedon. I am the founder and CEO of Feroz Real Estate Advisors, where we advise forward-thinking companies to position their portfolios, their buildings, and their teams to succeed during times of disruption. Over the course of my 20-plus year running, 20-plus year career running, multi-billion dollar portfolios. I built and led high-performing investment management and diverse investment management teams. And today at Feroz, we work at the intersection with our clients where we can create value out of the commercial real estate industry's uh, collision with technology, collision with ESGR, I add the R for resilience, and consumer demographics, changing consumer demographics. Glad to be here for number two. I'm glad we made it, Joe. We made yes. it for the first one. Yeah, you second. never know. That first one is a high bar. Could get the axe. Yeah, you didn't get axed. We're back again. Uh, yeah, no, we got great feedback on the first one. I think you guys both are super involved in obviously the implementation of technology, but you also have that lens about how real estate markets and real estate investors and real estate owners actually think. And I think that sort of intersection of things, I'm playing the sort of one that is still learning. That's my role here. Uh, That side of the, the, the way to think about smart building technology. And I should say thank you to you both. You, you both have been super involved in Nexus pro and Nexus foundations and sort of helping me bring that perspective to, you know, obviously the events that we do, you both have taught SME workshops on your different expertises. Uh, So thank you. Pleasure. You're you're the one guy moving this world forward in a way that is different from the past. And I think both Mandy and I appreciate that Nexus is trying to do it right and do it differently. And and it's working. Thank you. Trying to. And and no longer one guy anymore either. Uh, Rosie is here now. Uh, Those of you that haven't met Rosie yet can check out the podcast we did together a couple weeks ago. Um, let's jump in. So let's start with ESGR and, and Mandy, this is an area where you and I talked about this on the podcast, like a year and a half ago, something like that. Right. And I'd say that it was hyped up then, and it's even more hyped up now. I think what's been interesting lately is when you look at the headlines, there's like a political, uh, commentary happening around it as well. I don't know that it was happening as much back then, but it seems like there's been uh, some pushback. Can you just kind of describe what's going on with the headlines and all the press and attention that ESGR is getting right now? Sure. Yep. So I will say that 
Um, yes, there are a lot of headlines, but regardless of what the newspapers and media is saying, ESGR is here to say the horse has left the barn, so we have to figure out how to engage with it to get the best results. And uh, it's a it's a tool, it's a acronym that's being used to serve different purposes. And so it's possible that we won't call it ESG in two years, right? We'll have uh, evolved and used a different word. I don't know what it is. You can you can patent or trademark the one you think that's going to win, but um, <laughs> it's going. Don't. It potentially could be something different. But I think it's important to level set what it is, right? And many of you who have heard me talk about this before, it hasn't. What it is hasn't changed, right? At the base of it, it is a comprehensive approach that investors use to evaluate investment decisions through a framework, an ESGR framework, to achieve both strong risk-adjusted returns and positive societal impact. You need both. And you need both to, to both meet the needs today without compromising the future. And the four pillars are interconnected, environmental, right? Steward of nature. Social criteria evaluates how you manage relationships, community, customers. Governance deals with your leadership and your executive pay and your oversight and shareholder rights. And resilience is how businesses, properties, investments are prepared to manage through risk, adverse events, as well as capitalize on opportunities. And at the core, it hasn't changed. It's about creating long-term value, through managing risk, building resiliency, and providing transparency and accountability. It's, it's, our conversation is different now because it has um, made headlines and been used as a tool, but the investors, lenders, employees, tenants, and regulators are still demanding it. And that pressure has only increased, right? We can talk about it as hype or we can talk about it as pressure. It's only hmm. increased. And I totally. give two numbers when I talk about it from a carrot and a stick perspective. Okay. One is 121 trillion US dollars. And that represents the owners and investors who are signatories to the UNPRI, the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment. $121 trillion signed a public commitment to integrate ESG into their investment and ownership decisions. That's a huge number. That's grown significantly in the last two years. And that's assets under management of all of the signatories? Mm -hmm. And okay. then 48% is my other number. This is the stick side of it. That's regulation around decarbonization at the local jurisdiction level and then disclosure um, requirements most notably the SEC's ruling that'll come in April. But 48% of the buildings that were, that received a grade under New York City's local law in 97 last year received a D or an F. That's a really hard score to have when you're trying to go and sell your building or refinance it or negotiate a renewal with your tenant. So that's a big stick, regardless of your disclosure requirements. Right, right. And we've talked about mandatory laws and other podcasts, most recently with uh, Cliff Majersik talking about all the different ways in which these regulations come into play. Um, can we talk about, okay, these targets have been set $121 trillion. Can we talk about how that trickles down into how does this meet the, you know, hit the operations? How does this hit an individual building? That's, that's, that's really where you know, the rubber meets the road and it's it's a tall, tall task right now because everybody kind of understands the E or when you talk about DEI, they understand the D, diversity, and there are metrics you can quantify energy and diversity. But then when you get to the SG and the EI of those two acronyms, you're in a, uh, a much more um, opaque world today. That's not to say that it won't iron itself out over time, but it really is difficult to say, how am I progressing? Are there standards? Are there metrics? Are there quantifiable ways I can show this as opposed to writing a 20 page narrative about what we're doing? And so that's still a lot. That's the area that's still under development. 
And that is quite frankly a struggle for uh, a lot of people. You've got lenders, you know, you've got the money that's committing to these goals. You've got occupiers and tenants that are committing to these at that level. You've got individual management companies that are committing and ownership that's committing. So everybody's making, you know, putting their flag in the sand. But how do you how do you then show that in a somewhat standardized way? And that's that's sort of where we are today is, is working through the struggle of showing that progress in a way that everybody agrees is is, is a standard. I agree. And, and yeah, what I've seen recently. <laughs> sorry, what we see, I think, and we see these annual reports, right? You see an annual report from, uh, uh, and it's kind of like the person writing that report decided what was going to be reported and what numbers were going to be reported and whether that number is good or not and whether that progress is being celebrated. And it, yeah, it's right now, it's like everyone's trying to feel out what's good. And then it seems like what's good is also the, it's also ratcheting up. The expectations are ratcheting up over time. Each year is like, well, what was good in 2019 is probably not good right now. And so that's, that's making it more difficult to sort of wade through what it means to be successful in this area. Totally. I, I think part of that struggle too is um, you, you, it's very much like a smart building, right? Um, what was smart in 2019 would not necessarily be the same standard today. And it's, you can apply the, where we are with ESG, the same as technology in that these are works in progress and they're, they're really happening in parallel, but, but very much along the same kind of timeline with the same learning curves, development curves. So I just think that, you know, there's, there's no shying away from it. That's where we are. But the good news is all parties are sort of committing to it and around it. And so that bodes well for the future. Yeah. It's just going to be a little bit bumpy so, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So Manny, Joe mentioned DEI. You do a lot of work in, in this area. We've had our, our own uh, webinar and podcast on this conversation, on that conversation. Can you talk about kind of how DEI fits into the ESGR conversation? Sure. Yeah, so from uh, an investor's perspective or a risk analysis perspective, DEI is, is one of the pieces of the robust ESGR strategy. And it can be housed under the S pillar or under the G pillar. And it's also in R, right? Because it's they're all interconnected. And if mm -hmm. you have a access to um, a broad-based talent pool and you have um, a strong program where you grow and retain your employees and your talent, your organization is better equipped to respond to exogenous shocks and it, you can perform better. And you've heard me say this, we use a lot of tech to underwrite our investments, but at the end of the day, the investment decision is made by a human. And we want a better informed decision we have more inputs, more viewpoints, more lived experiences, we can make a better decision to get better results. And when we widen our field of vision, we bring more people, more viewpoints, more perspectives to the table, we see more opportunities and we see more risks and we see more ways forward. And to Joe's point, right, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, those are all words that we use today to talk about widening that field of vision. And the population, the workforce is changing drastically. This is a point that some organizations are feeling today and some will feel tomorrow, but there will be, and there are actually on the Gen Z side, there are 300,000 fewer people who are turning 18 each year compared to 10 years ago. So there's a smaller incoming cohort. We're producing fewer workers defined as an 18 year old. And then on the other end of the spectrum, by the end of this decade, by 2030, all of the baby boomers will have turned 65 or older. So that's the sh retiring piece. That's the shrinking other end of the spectrum. So what's in the middle, right? That's the workforce that you have in the middle. That's also probably your user and creator of your real estate or your technology. And that um, is where the talent war lies today. 
And if you don't have a business practice that can manage that risk well, then you're at a disadvantage. And I think that's a looming crisis almost that, um, as Manny said, some people are seeing and feeling, but the numbers don't lie. I mean, the age out that's going to occur on the on the high end is going to be extremely hard to replace if you looked at it today based on the resources and development of new people coming in and skills skill sets coming in it's a massive lift that is has been chronically kind of under-resourced over time so so that that is another challenge it's it's going to be very very hard to replace um, the the skill sets and the personnel across commercial commercial real estate operations, and um, you know maybe maybe robots will take some piece of that, but I don't think enough. No, yeah. it, so, it will not take it either. <laughs> no, <laughs> not our. It's not the uh, golden solution. No, nope. but I mean, think about it from a real estate investment perspective, right? Fewer 18-year-olds means there'll be fewer household formations happening in the next decade, right? And household formation is a hugely important metric that we follow for residential, both um, to own and to rent. So understanding who your renter is, who your customer is, uh, is important. And how many of them are there? And where do they choose to work? And how do they choose to work? All important to your underlying investment criteria. Yep. Totally. Um, anything else on that topic before we move on? So much more, but let's move on. <laughs> There's always more. <laughs> I think one of the other things that since Mandy, you and I have talked about this since we talked about it, one of the other things that's popped up a lot recently is greenwashing. So can you talk about where we're at? I mean, it's in the new, in the headlines a ton right now. Um, people getting called out, people getting shamed, I'd say a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes for good reason, right? Can you talk a little bit about how the greenwashing fits into this equation and maybe talk about it from the investor's perspective? Sure. Okay. So um, Joe noted, right, and you noted that what, what we're what organizations, the industry, what investment managers are committing to do is sometimes very tightly defined because then they can meet it or talk about it, or they don't actually set a target. They just talk about what their values are and what their um, philosophies are. So that's a lot of that is avoiding greenwashing, right? Avoiding the headline shame of you said X and then you did Y. We wanna know what happened, right? Those are hard conversations. Um, I would say, Transparency matters a lot. So as, as things have changed in your organization with your underlying budgets, with your DEI targets, with your decarbonization plans, with your board uh, diversity composition, make the statement that it's different and here's what it's going to be going forward instead of ignoring it. Because otherwise you get a greenwashing label and that's, um, that and then, so if you, if you're the in pension fund, you're the ultimate money on making an allocation decisions on behalf of pensioners, you're allocating dollars to different investment managers, different investments. If the allocation, you've made an allocation to an organization that then has a big greenwashing scandal slash headline, that reflects really poorly on the pension fund and the advisor who made that or the owner who made that. So don't ever embarrass your clients. Don't embarrass yourself, right? And so that those are the opportunities that organizations have right now. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting here, this came up in this morning's pro member gathering where it's actually, and then we've talked about it a little bit with how hard it is right now to actually operationalize ESGR is, and you hinted on it a little bit there, Mandy, if, if we're actually getting in, we as a real estate organization, we're actually getting into the weeds and we're saying, how are we going to get to this target that we've set? And then we realize that that's actually really, really hard. Um, 
you're saying it might be time to come out and say like, here is what we're dealing with and being transparent about how hard it actually is to get to that target that you set. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 I, I think too, it goes a little bit beyond that. I, I feel, uh, I, it seems to me that in the market market as a whole, there's very little tolerance at the moment for mistakes. And I think that when you're trying to get from where we are to this very, very difficult to achieve goal, there needs to be a little bit of tolerance. People need a pass for making a mistake and being able to be transparent about it to a degree. And right now you see the market saying, well, you know, here I, I, I'm meeting these ESG goals in my life sciences organization. Uh, we're above the industry you know, benchmark, the industry average, it's like, well, that average is horrendous. So that doesn't really tell you, you're basically taking, you know, it's the cherry picking of statistics to spin a narrative to get yourself some points where, where I think where we really would benefit is saying, okay, we know where we are in this process. Let's, let's let people make mistakes and not just come crashing down on them because the industry as a whole is not developed enough and we're trying. And, and to give people a pass for honest effort would probably be very, very helpful over the ensuing two to three years, I, I think. That, that's, that would be my ask. Totally Especially for real estate where you're juggling so many challenges at once right now, so many, not just the business model and the economics, but technology and ESG, and, and it's all happening at the same time, just as the market is tanking. So it's just like, like give everybody just, we're all, you know, there, there are honest efforts being made, but if it isn't exactly right, let's just, we should be strong enough to say, okay, we, we didn't realize that, now we're doing this. Totally. So related to this greenwashing conversation, Mandy, you had a recent LinkedIn post, which I, I liked a lot. Um, you were talking about green bonds a little bit, and I, I think you were also talking about why greenwashing is profitable now, but it won't be profitable in the future. Can, can you explain that, but also talk about, I, I think there's a certain portion of this audience that might think they know what green bonds means. And can you just talk about what that even is to begin with, to start the conversation? Sure. Um, yeah, so I did. Thank you for um, reading my LinkedIn post. It was uh, it felt really uh, wonky, geeky, but um, it, really it struck me as a conversation that you were having in private and you were like, P other people need to learn this. Oh, I, I do that a lot, horrifying. too. And I like those. Really, I like this. Horrifying. <laughs> that, yeah. yeah, that too. So what's a green bond? A, a green bond is new capital, new money to be invested in projects that have a green focus. And green can be really broadly defined, right? It could be ESG, it could be sustainability, it could be renewable. It, it's fortunately broadly defined. Um, and bonds are issued by countries, companies, uh, municipalities. And the post was about the last year, only 30% of green bonds had a commitment to invest in green projects. So they essentially went from 100% green bonds investing in green projects to 30% green bonds investing in green projects. And that's because there's such a huge appetite for bonds, green bonds, and there's avoidance of risk on behalf of the bond issuer. So they'll say, okay, uh, we're going to raise money for green projects, but we don't, we're not going to commit to doing any green projects. And it's this lack of transparency that is making greenwashing profitable, right? There's so much demand. The bond market was down as a whole last year in issuances, but there were more green bonds issued year over year, right? So hmm. that's where the appetite is. So they can sell you, you know, an apple when you asked for a cheeseburger because they're going to buy any food right now and it doesn't matter if it's green or not green in the green bond world and i was really like 
oh. uh, really frustrated and I was like, what? I have to write about this as I bang it out on my keyboard. <laughs> that was the most eye-opening thing I've posted I've seen in so long. I, I honestly couldn't believe it. I had to talk to you about it because I like the, so for the, to simplify this for some people like 30% of the money raised for green projects is actually being used for green projects because the fine print in those bonds say, we don't really have to do that, which is, I, I don't know how that, it just blows my mind that that can even be a thing that that could happen. So, so layman's question here, is there a problem with having low, like, did we not have enough low risk green projects to invest in? Like, do we need more of those projects? Like, can this audience help de-risk and provide more projects for that yep. audience? Good question. So th this was, um, my post was based on a, a paper, a research paper that was written by three professors. And so they asked the question in the paper of why is this happening? Like, hmm. why, why is that acceptable? Why is the market buying this? And so that's one of the, um, proposals is there are not enough green projects that can be funded by green bonds. Um, the answer is no, there's plenty of green projects. Oh in yeah. My opinion, oh yeah. Cause be I was going to say, that's bonds. how you start everyone else in the audience slamming on yeah. their keyboards no, because I, everyone it, in this audience knows that there are plenty of projects out there. It's totally yeah. BS. It's, it's what it is, yeah. is a bunch of people who are used to spending money in the least risky way that have an opening to do that. So it's, is it less risky com relative to what? And if you have the back door open, you're always going to go where the the least risk is from your history. But if you've shut mm -hmm. that door, there are zillions of projects to fund. It's it's just I oh I can't I can't believe that that's possible. It's just so sad. It was like Mandy's post was like a fire hose feeding my cynicism that I don't want any more of. And it was just like, no, this can't be. This it can't is. be. So part of what I liked about this is you were saying why it won't be profitable for them to do that in the future. Can you talk about what door is going to close for them here, Mandy? Yeah, I think it's the disclosure requirements and the regulatory hmm. framework that's coming. And that's coming on multiple fronts, right? It's, uh, it's at the SEC level for um, any entities that are registered with the SEC or there's going to be more disclosure requirements and the SEC is not telling you uh, how to fix it or how to mitigate it. They're just saying, tell your investors what you're selling and then you're going to be held accountable to selling that product. Right. And so where there's no accountability today or transparency today, there will be more in the future in the the regulations coming out of other parts of the world right asia and europe um are they're in a different um place in the journey for disclosure in esg and so they're more robust and in some cases more prescribed so there'll be even more transparency demanded and reported yeah and and one of the things that you were talking about in the prep session to this was how things are changing on the eu side of things can you talk about how more transparency is going to be happening over on that side of the pond? Yes. So um, I'm fortunate to be working on a project with a client who's launching a solar development fund, putting solar arrays on top of existing buildings as well as other um, renewable energy projects. And they, uh, through that, I've had the opportunity to learn a lot about the SFDR disclosure framework. So it's EU's sustainable financial disclosure regulation. And it's, here's what you're um, a much more prescribed about what you have to tell your investors your investment product is. So article six is an investment product. That's one level of disclosure. Article eight is another level and that's an investment product with ESG initiatives incorporated into it. And then Article 9 goes to the next level, includes ESG plus a sustainability uh, alignment, which essentially is do no harm to the climate. And the way that this is going to feel different and is acting different is from an SFDR disclosure 
perspective, you have to make a pre-contractual disclosure about here's what we're going to do in the E, S, and the G segments to be you know, measuring carbon footprint to not um, using products or include in your supply chain um, anything with forced labor to uh, governance and a tracking, much more uh, detailed. That's mm -hmm. before you do it, that's your pre-contractual. And then annually you'll say, here's what we did and how we did. And if, you, if something comes up that's a red flag that needs to be disclosed, you will disclose that along the way. We didn't meet this target or this changed. And that is a very different standard than what we're experiencing in the US today around disclosures and setting goals and then accountability to meeting them. I, I really think, mm -hmm. Jane and Mandy, it's kind of the window into the future. Uh, I mean, we can see, we can look to that as as sort of where we're headed on the journey and, and that will continue forward ahead of us. But it really is sort of a, a window in or a harbinger of things to come. And it needs to be like this is just exactly the process that we just talked about of codification, standardization, like I need the things, I need those laid out so that I can meet them so that then I can connect the dots and say, here's how I'm meeting those things that are now officially things to, to you know, raise my game to, 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 to come up to. And that's critical because if, it's, if it stays opaque, then you're going to have more green bond stories <laughs> and nobody wants that. So that that's a critical piece of the process as labor intensive and sort of it takes a long time to get there. But but it's it's absolutely fundamental to the process. Totally. And I'm just sitting here as I listen to you, Joe, you brought up this similar point a couple of times here on this episode. How many conversations about ESG I've heard? where now that you say that, I'm like, oh my God, it's so obvious that we don't have that. And so a lot of the conversations are just kind of feeling around in the dark because we don't have this like process to point to with, you know, measurable <laughs> results. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, and, and it's it's sort of like uh, it, what's coming to mind is like when we say zero carbon, for example, well, that's something that we can now sit here and say, oh, where, how much carbon <laughs> are we, like, where are we at on, on carbon? Because we set zero as the target. We don't necessarily have that for a lot of the other end goals that we we're talking about here. Very okay. So let's take this. We've set a nice little frame of reference context setting. You might call it. How is this sort of impacting smart building technology and the market for smart building technology? Who wants to start with that? So I want to add one thing that's a layer to this um, question. And that okay. is that there are so many um, organizations that are selling me and my clients ESG solutions, which could be lots of different things because there are lots of different needs. But very few of them have their own ESG statements or goals or positions. And totally. For my clients and I, that's a big red flag. This, if this you is, don't do this, why should I buy what you're selling? Yes. I, I swear this is like the golden thought here. It's, it, it, and it goes, and tech, it's directly parallel to technology. Are you eating your own dog food? That's what, what we've always said. And, and that, if you, I, I truly think, Mandy, you hit on, this is how you vet that solution provider. Can you show me your ESG plan using your tools? I want, I would like to see that in, right there. Just show me that so I can understand how these tools work and how you're using it to achieve those. And if you can't do that, then that's, that, that gets kicked to the curb because that is the kind of fundamental vetting tool um, that you, you, where you can really say, are these people, at least they have something, you know, I can see it. But if they're, if they're not able to even produce that, I don't, I agree. I think it's very squishy after that. Yeah. And there's so learning. There's I'm, lots of learning. If I'm like a, let's say I'm a solution provider. We've been talking a lot about vital roles recently. I'm a MSI, right? And I'm an MSI hearing this. 
and I sell software products and I sell projects. How can I sort of, and, and, and my marketing and salespeople are using ESG to sell those software products and solutions, right? How can I make it so that when I go to a building owner, I am eating my own dog food? How can I do that? Show me. Let's go back to Missouri. I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the state of Missouri, the show me state. Show me your plan. That would be a great start. Okay. Um, on the MSI side, on the technology side, show me your office. Can you? Do you have that mythical single pane of glass where you can see everything that's happening in that office? Have you outfitted your office with occupancy sensing that is controlling various aspects of heating, cooling, lighting? You know, have you put the time and investment to shut to your own space that is translatable to me? That as a, when I'm putting on my ops hat, as a potential customer, that's gonna tell me a lot. Maybe, maybe more than your reference clients who are gonna say nice things. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, you, can, you can go, you can look at um, your biggest investor, your biggest client, and what does their ESG report say? What are their values? What are their targets? And what are, what are we doing already or what can we do to make that journey, right? Do we measure our carbon footprint? Do we make decisions that helps reduce our carbon footprint, right? Do we um, have a DEI program? Do we even use those words? Do we talk about diverse team members? Do we have diverse team members? Do we value diverse uh, thoughts in the workplace? You can talk about your supply chain and what you recommend, what your products are. Do you confirm that they're not made with the use of human uh, forced labor, right? Like there, there's different things that are regularly high ticket items on a broad scale mm -hmm. ESG plan that you can understand how you can play in uh, into that value chain, the big broad value chain to meet those goals, to support the goals of your clients. Right, because again, don't don't embarrass your clients by installing a product that it turns out was made by young uh, underage children in a different part of the world. Yes. Right, that okay. hurts on so yeah. many different levels, but it's really an embarrassing moment for your client and an embarrassing moment for yourself. And you could say that same thing about the embodied carbon of that device, or you know, what whatever other metric that they have a, a goal around. Totally. All right. What other what other ways are ESG are market conditions trends impacting this smart building marketplace? Well, I mean, I, I, the 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 truth is, and I, this is going to get into the broader topic, but without going too deep yet into that, um, there's the, there is a, you know we're going to this is going to be a struggle not for every single asset and every single vertical, but but as a whole, the CRE market is going to get pinched financially for a long time, a lot longer. People have been very polite about it. Probably Mandy and I were too polite the first time, given our backgrounds. But this is, this is you know, right now, it's a five-year problem that it, it takes very long to recover in real estate. It's not like the macroeconomic economy. So we are going to see financial struggles and the master struggle for technology and ESG is going to be, can we continue to develop the standards and sell the products enough to support the clients at a time when they can least afford it? And it, it's going to, there's going to, there's going to be a lot of distress in the market because of that. Yeah. I also think it's, it's, it's changing. So we, we went, we've gone from mostly a desktop exercise for ESG certifications, reporting policies and procedures, contractual updates, as much of that as could be done. And that's important because it's laying the foundation for what's next. Um, and what's next is taking it into the building and changing human behavior. And that's hard, right? We talk mm. about that in many instances and within the Nexus community. And it, it takes time and money and commitment and 
as Joe noted, we don't have a lot of time. We have a lot less money this year than we did the beginning of the year last year. And our commitment uh, maybe is the same, but our ability to execute has potentially changed. And as we're seeing with some headlines, maybe our commitment is changing too. So making progress, um, deploying technology, deploying um, solutions that will meet these ultimate ESG goals, remembering that ESG is about getting better results through better managing risk and better deploying resources. It's harder today, and it's only going to get harder while the real estate market is in complete flux. Well, let's go ahead and just talk about where the market is, and then maybe we could circle back to, once we talk about the market, we can circle back back to smart buildings. So, let, Joe, let's go to you. Like, Let's just do this you know, sort of macro market update, yeah. what, what's happening right now. We've talked about a lot less money. What, what do you mean by that? What's going on? And it could be very oh similar boy. to the last time we talked about this yeah. as well. If, if, the, if my last statement was a bucket of cold water, this is going to be a water tower of cold water. Um, but, but look, you have, to, you have to acknowledge where we are, and this is where we are. Okay, just, just, just take these five points in. Interest rates are double what they were 18 months ago. Vacancy is double what it was 18 months ago. Rents are substantially lower, like way down for B and C class properties. Kind of a pretty, pretty much treading water at the A class, but the A class is very small. So B and C properties are down, you know, vacancy rates are, are, are double, triple what they were. And um, there's a reduced demand for space. That's number four. So you've got the same tenants taking 15, 30-ish percent less space than they were. And probably the least often forgotten aspect is on the expense side of the model. Expenses have risen 11% is the kind of average you hear floating around. That's a huge increase in expenses. So you have a quintuple whammy, I, double whammies I've seen, triple whammies. This is like five, all converging on the market at once. And is multifamily trailing, doing better? Yes, but it's, it's just, it's trailing and it's moving in the same direction as say office space, which is the hardest hit. Life sciences is going and just like coming to us to a to a hard stop and probably going to go that direction as well. So the truth is, commercial real estate is 100 percent in a recession. The economy as a whole is not commercial real estate and especially office is 100 percent there. But it's at the you know, it's like the train that's going down the hill and it's just coming down, but you know where, where it's going and there's no more track down there. And you can see a wheel wobbling, but unless Superman comes along, it's happening. So, you know, the smart companies are going to figure out where the money needs to be spent and get there to meet the market and continue to survive or excel in a very difficult market. And so that is ESG tools have to be done there there are certain things that just have to happen irrespective of tight budgets and certain core technologies have to be done for local law 97 in new york for other markets that absolutely have to meet certain benchmarks and energy star compliance and things like that so there are opportunities in there but the truth is there's going to be a lot of distress both asset distress and company distress, uh, solution provider distress over the next. And it truly, I mean, if you aren't looking at at least five years, then um, you, you haven't been around long enough because this, these cycles are long. And I, I'm sorry to have to say it, but it's the absolute truth. Unless, you know, by some miracle, something changes that just breathes life in in a very, very quick way, it's just going to happen. And that and yeah, that never happened have. before. That has never happened. Before. There's no, you know, the the Fed doesn't just drop interest rates back to zero. <laughs> so, it's it's a, it's going to be a while. And 
it really we're sitting in the moment of peak uncertainty, right? All that is happening while um, we're waiting. We broad, we macro, as well as the real estate industry is waiting to see at what point interest rates will stabilize from the Fed's perspective and then start to come down. Right. So when when that moment happens and it'll take a couple months for there to be some trust or expectation that it's now a trend and not just a blip, then you'll see activity resume and you'll see transaction more transaction volume happen. But we're in the moment of peak uncertainty because interest rates are high and no uh, clear indicator of when they'll drop. The way we've used real estate, particularly office, has changed, and we don't know where that's going yet. And we're uh, the broad economy is anticipating a recession, so we're everybody's planning for and bunkering. Not just real estate, which yes, I agree with Joe. With the second interest rate hike back in the spring, real estate went into a recession as defined by zero growth or negative growth and transactions, right? Those three are big pressures, and we are wading through them. And the, the market is paused, still paused is a kind word, frozen, dead. If you're trying to sell a yeah. mediocre asset because your lender is telling you you must sell because you've tripped a covenant, and, you're and, in a tough spot. And, and where are we? I mean, in every major metro market now, Buildings have just been handed back, keys back to the to the lender. Um, that that big big buildings in every major mar market, and there's a lot of analysis occurring now in these large companies to determine which ones to hand back, and they're gonna. So there's gonna be another it's sort of like a trickle that's getting gonna hopefully stop at a small flow, but it's going. Those things are going to happen over the next 12 months, and. Those pressures, those five pressures that I talked about are some of them can go away with stability, but then you're still sitting at a lower asset value significantly. 20 to 35% is a very good range right now from, from the highs that, 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 you know, when you talk about a third of an asset value being knocked off, that's, that's you know, all, that's as bad as we've ever seen, put it that way. So... Yes, people are very good now. They're planning and they're, it's happening in a way that is healthier. So to hopefully mitigate some of that, that has also not really happened before. There's been a very good, very good job. Debt to equity is much better and a lot of the fundamentals are better. So that's going to help. But the truth is when you're staring down just having lost, you know, on a $100 million building, $30 million of it, that the pressures are, I mean, budgets are going to be as tight as you've ever seen. So that's where I talk about getting back to the core solutions. That's, that's going to be really critical. Okay, cool. So now with that context, we have the ESG happening. We have general market conditions happening. Now let's kind of talk about what are the best strategies for the technology marketplace to sort of adopt right now. So I would say one piece that um, is in, is informing and influencing the, adapt, the adoption or the investment into technology is you have another decision maker at the table for a lot of these projects, and that's the lender. They probably um, two years ago didn't have to be at the table because the loan was performing and the asset was performing, but now... The stat I read the other day is 60% of the office buildings are economically owned by the lender, which means they're um, scrutinizing expenditures. They're not uh, saying yes or no, they're just looking very closely. And as the owners are trying to work, the borrowers are trying to work their way through it. So if you're gonna make a big investment, there needs to be a very sound reason, and there always has been, but now there needs to be a sound reason that um, it makes sense for cash flow to come out of that asset. And so it's another layer of decision-making process. It's another um, challenge of time and uh, information. And it's super opaque. As the solutions provider, you don't, you're not talking to the lender at the table, right? Someone else is probably, you know, three games of telephone away. But that um, is part of the process today. And 
there's there's also a difference between why is why is this difference from today different than the GFC, the Great Financial Crisis? And a couple things come to mind. One is lenders didn't take buildings back as quickly then because they saw a way forward for where the building would be when the uncertainty abated and there was more clarity. And they wanted that to continue to be in the hands of the operator, the expert. Today, they don't have that clarity of where that office building will be in function. So they don't, they want to have control, right? So they'll take it back. And the second is just where the leverage levels were going into the GFC and where they are today as the value dropped. There's potentially, if there's still money on the table and the value of that building, the lender wants to take it. Yep. And mo there were more um, multifamily assets that went into default under their loans than office in the last report, right? So it's not just office building, right? It's broader. But when you think about deploying technology and you think about the solutions and how you're going to win, um, win the sale, win the execution, it's really important that you know the pressures of the owner. And you hear me say this all the time, like what's important to them and why should you care? Because that's the only way you're going to get that that's, contract signed. Know your customer, speak their language. If you can do that, then you will understand all of the hurdles they have sitting behind that. And that, that would go to my one piece of advice. It's one word, core. And it's, what does that mean? It's your solution needs to be core to what the building needs in a tough environment. Your relationships, your core relationships are the ones that are going to get you through the tough time. Focusing on those you know, and not scale is going to be critical if you want to get through and make progress and working through your core relationships in real estate, commercial real estate in particular, it is such a small number of people under this very broad hood of assets. Those, those core relationships are critical as you try to get through and, 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 and grow. Um, it, during this tough time. And then the other thing is, James, it comes back to your marketing fluff. You have to deliver exactly what you say you're going to deliver. You can't have, you cannot have one single thread of marketing fluff in your delivery in this market for the next, I'm going to say five years. You can't because it will get sussed out it will get exposed when you can't do something that you represented and you 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 will not survive the five years. That is that's like a third rail now. Um, if it weren't before, it's always been uh, it's been been the advice given. But now it's truly a third rail. And if you cannot deliver that thing you're saying you can, that's going to you, you won't you won't make you won't make it through the stretch. So I want to kind of pull back in something from the last episode, which we talked about, what are you delivering? And I think last time we talked about, we're delivering a, a repositioning of assets sometimes. So when the assets are changing ownership right now, which it seems like they are, is that a piece where people could look at that and say, that's an opportunity for us still? Is that one of the strategies that applies? Definitely, right? And that, yeah. that's because there's a transaction and there's dollars available. Right. Yeah. And if you're going to keep the asset, right, you've got the investor, the owner has gone through a wholesale decision and they're keeping it. So they're reinvesting in it. Mm -hmm. So what are they investing to meet their reposition needs? Right? How are they repositioning? Then, it? Yeah. Yes. And that yeah. could be we have a net zero carbon target. We need to totally. start the plan today. And that means reduce, reuse and recycle, right? So what's the reduction piece of it? And then what's our capital investment into it? So that understanding that that's a framework is a great place to meet. Your I team. feel like that's huge. Sorry. Yeah. Jeff. Well, the C and B prop, the majority of the market, B and C class properties, they fundamentally have to undergo that transition to survive even after being taken back by the lender. So there will be that that's the good news is 
after, through this painful cycle, the recapitalization at a lower value, open, that, that lower value opens up new funds to come in to make that transition happen. So that is the opportunity in the process to come in and help make that transition. That's gonna become a big piece of this business going forward. And, and that, you know, if the, to the extent you can get in and be seen and visible there and deliver, that, that it's a complicated process, very complex to take a B or C class property and move that up the chain for, for real. And so it's not redoing the lobby anymore. It's fundamental technology and ESG commitment driven move up yeah. from a C to a B or a B to a B plus or an A an A. So that those are expensive, but the money will be there. Cause they, they, they it's gonna and that's happen. That's where I've been trying to on the ESG panels I've been sitting on, I've been trying to communicate that to the people that maybe sat there five years ago and said, our value proposition is energy savings. And if an asset is being repositioned for ESG or for decarbonization, your asset or your, your value proposition is energy savings and, right? You need to start to think about how you fit into this repositioning process. Um, I wanted to get, to, we're kind of running out of time here. I wanted to get to one last question for you guys. And we talked about this last week. I think this will be last week by the time this comes out. But um, Joe Amador and Gene Casey and I talked about this. It was this tweet thread that we'll put in the show notes. And the tweet, the, the original tweet said, prop tech startups, and this is super related, prop tech startups that charge per unit recurring SaaS fees and promise either amorphous process efficiency improvements or worse, I'm using air quotes here, data-driven operating insights, which is everyone are going to have an incredibly hard time generating new business in 2023. Can you guys unpack that and unpack that from the lens of if I'm one of those vendors and I go to my own website and it says data-driven operating insights, how should I be like thinking about my life right now? <laughs> Chatbot rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I would say that um, the data-driven operational insights are the means to the end, which is better performance and better results. You can talk about insights, and you can talk about data being valuable, but you have to get to the action piece and the results piece of it. And if you, so my perspective is, if you can produce actions and produce improved performance and results, if you choose to charge per unit or percentage or per square foot, the landlord will probably pay for it if the math works for them, right? But hmm. if you're charging a um, dollar per unit and you're just gonna get more data, just, then you've only gotten half of the picture um, for the full cost. So they want the entire picture for the entire cost. And so you're, you're only halfway there. This this comes back to the the problem. It's it's directly connected, which is I've got a dashboard for my sensors and a dashboard for my HVAC and a dashboard for my lighting control and a dashboard for my and and that will not. And before people could tinker in that world and see well what does that really do and what insights do I get that I can act on and there was room to test and to 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 explore a little bit in this universe but now i have even less dollars fewer resources my smart building team just got axed my you know two of my enter my five enterprise architects are gone like i need you to quantifiably show me how to these some of these things are going to be brought together an usable way that will drive my expenses down. When you can do that, you're in. I, you got my interest because I, I can still make the case for that. If you're sitting on the periphery out here, I cannot have my engineer going to three different places to look at something and then go over here to see what if it's real. And it's just, it's not, it's not on the table now. And so that, that's how I would sort of fr frame it. Love it. I think that's a good way to, to close off this 
this version of our our ongoing series. Let's end with carve outs. So what what book, TV show, podcast, movie, documentary, insert your media choice, media of choice here uh, has had a major impact on you lately. Let's start with you, Mandy. Sure. So I have two for you. One is um, chat GPT. I've posted about this recently, the um, bias in our data, right? Algorithmic bias in our data and what Mm -hmm. that means to society, to our industry, to investments. It's far reaching and chat GPT is the the phrase, the current use now. So testing that out and being like, hmm, okay, this writes like my talented sixth grader. Awesome. I ask for a compare and contrast for information. Okay, that also sounds like my talented sixth grader. Great. I'm not at risk of losing my consulting clients right now, maybe in five years, right? But Mm -hmm. the answers that it gives and the data sets that it pulls from, what are those? And if we use only the past, we're going to build essentially our future that looks exactly like the past. And for some of us on Earth, it hasn't been that great. So how can we do it better? Is where I've been spending a lot of time reading and testing. Absolutely. I feel the same way. I was going to say real quick, I I feel the same way about the time I've spent on chat GPT asking it about smart buildings topics. I feel like the answer it gives is very rooted in how things were or how, you know, they were five years ago, 10 years ago. It, it, it doesn't really provide a perspective on where we should go or how we should get there. And if you go to the Nexus Labs website, nothing on that site was written by <laughs> ChatGPT. <laughs> Fair. I, I, would, I would add, chat, um, here's the, uh, here's what, uh, if you're a solutions provider company, so it's uh, just lighting, your lighting control, Go to ChatGBT and say, explain the top five reasons a building should deploy lighting control to a, in, to a five-year-old. You know, it's, mm. play with the terms, but basically say, here's my solution and explain the top five reasons at, to a five-year-old. What you will get uh, is shockingly helpful for building staff. And I do, it's not to cast aspersions on the billing staff. It's just broken down in a way that is like what would have taken years of marketing wordsmithing um, in a way that you can take, slightly change, and actually probably explain better to a non-technical audience your solution. It, 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 was, it was shocking to see like the top 10 reasons for a smart building explained to a five-year-old. It's unbelievable. It's like, oh my God, that's actually going to be translatable to people who really don't understand all of the nuance and all of the technical totally. stuff. Totally. Okay, sorry, Mandy, we interrupted you. Yeah, you had sorry. another one. Oh, my second one is I'm reading Dinners with Ruth by Nina Totenberg. Nina Totenberg is a NPR Supreme Court correspondent. And so I'm enjoying the connections to DC and RBG and, uh, and I listen to Nina on the radio on a regular basis too. Awesome. Joe, how about you? Well, it just dawned on me because you, you mentioned in the last few podcasts, um, the movie contact and everything everywhere all at once. And, Mm -hmm. um, in fact, everything everywhere all at once could actually explain the challenges in commercial real estate right now. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a great title. Everything, everywhere, all at once. But um, the, this book series, the first book is called Hyperion. And if you are a fan of Contact, it's, it was written, it won the Hugo Award, many, many awards. But um, if you're a fan of Contact and everything, everywhere, all at once, Hyperion is the one of the most well-written books I've ever read, one of the deepest, deep, deep, deep themes and layers of, um, of just well-crafted writing. It weaves somehow in a science fiction book, poetry from Keats into the mix. It's, in, it's in, I, honestly, as you hear it or read it, you will say, I can't believe this genius, like even the highest level genius would struggle to write this mat, these it's four books, these masterpieces. They're they're 
Cool. Uh, I learned so much and I got so much out of them. Philosophically, it's just very, very deep. Hyperion, start that's with awesome. Hyperion. Love it. And that's the first of four? Yep. You will, cool. if, you, if you like that, you will, you will be locked in for all four. They're, 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 they really are masterworks in literature. Nice. Yes. I'll share mine before we, we, we end this. Um, so the, the third season of Ted Lasso is coming out uh, in a couple of weeks. I would, if, if anyone hasn't caught up on season one and two, it's just a great, it's just a great show. You don't have to be a soccer fan. It has nothing to do with soccer, really. It's more about being a human. Um, so we resubscribed to Apple Plus to get ready for that. But on Apple Plus, there's a show called Shrinking. It's Jason Segel and Harrison Ford and Jessica Williams. And I'm like four episodes into it. My wife like pulled, I was like, I don't want another show. And then she like pulled it and me into it. And it's just so good. Anyone that's been through therapy before would just like love the lightheartedness around the therapy process. It's so good. Highly, highly recommend it. If you like Jason Segel, you'll love this. Uh, and, and Jessica Williams is just a amazing, amazing person to, to watch. So I agree. I, I laugh out loud at one of the episodes recently. Oh, yeah. I was like, I don't, uh, that my whole family is like, what? I'm like, hush, I'm watching. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait. yeah. I'm in. You're in. Love it. Um, cool. Well, thank you for this. You too. I think this will be super insightful for a lot of different stakeholders in the audience and we'll catch you next time. I hope we have a less bleak market outlook <laughs> in the next quarter. <laughs> Me too. We tell it like it is, James, right? That's, so you got it. You that's got fair. It. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.